The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. One of the things I love about doing this show is learning about people and organizations that are recommended to me from different guests. This week's show came about from the recommendation of a previous guest, Elliot Resnick, who told me about the Lawfare Project, a not-for-profit law firm that goes about the business of protecting the Jewish people in the area of civil rights. Once I heard about this organization, I knew I had to get them on the show. A few emails later, and we had our guest. My name is Sephora Wright, and I'm the Director of Litigation at the Lawfare Project. Tsipora and I will discuss the differences between anti-Semitism and civil rights violations, as well as some of the cases the Lawfare Project is working on these days, including a potential case against New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. So Tsipora, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about you before we get into the Lawfare Project. So if you could tell me a little bit about how did you become the director of litigation at the Lawfare Project? I came to the Lawfare Project a year ago, and the truth of the matter is, the cause of Jewish civil rights has been very near and dear to me my whole life. Unfortunately, you don't always have the opportunity right out of school to go into what you absolutely love. So for many years, I uh, worked as a, uh, an attorney in commercial litigation, and the cases weren't as rewarding as I wanted them to be. Um, there, it always felt like there was something missing, and I wanted to go back to the reason I went to law school to begin with, which was to make the world a better place. And I'm Jewish, and obviously, you know, fighting for my own people is close to my heart, and so I feel extremely privileged to have the opportunity to work with the Lawfare Project to do that kind of work. So let's talk a little bit about the Lawfare Project. What is the Lawfare Project? What are you uh, looking to do? What is the cause that you're looking to fight? And, and, and a little bit of the history. When did it start? So uh, the Lawfare Project was started by uh, Brooke Goldstein. She started it uh, 10 years ago. The Lawfare Project is a nonprofit civil rights organization that's dedicated to defending the civil rights and human rights of the Jewish community in the United States and all over the world. So that's what we do. So you guys have law firms all over the world. I'm assuming you have different, different offices in different countries that are more focused on those countries' laws, but you're all, you're all centralized on one location. Is that how it works? So essentially, we are headquartered in New York City, and uh, we have a large network of over 400 attorneys and law firms, combination of attorneys and law firms, that work with us. So if we want to file a lawsuit, often if the lawsuit is in the US, we would file it either ourselves, um, so we're of sorts uh, a litigation firm ourselves, right? Um, or we would file it with co-counsel. We would use a, a law firm or an attorney to help us if it's something that they have expertise in. And of course, if it's a, a case that's overseas, since we ourselves are not barred to, to, to practice law in another country, we would use one of the either attorneys or firms in that foreign country, um, and we would fund the litigation. They're a partner uh, of ours, and we would fund the litigation. And, and, and make no mistake, it's not just about funding the litigation. It's a cause that we know we have. We've defined the case we want. We've helped them develop the legal strategy. Um, we're very much involved in what happens to the case overseas. And we have very much a, a, a say over, over the strategy. We'll get into later on a little bit of the specific cases that uh, the Lawfare Project has done and you specifically have led or run. But in general, what kinds of cases does the Lawfare Project look to take on? And how do you decide which ones to take on versus which ones you're going to pass on? So, first of all, um, like I said before, our main goal is to defend the civil rights and human rights of Jewish communities wherever we see them being violated. And it's complex because, you know, we're one firm, we can only handle a certain amount of cases, and certainly we have to make a decision about which cases we take on and which cases we can't afford to take on at this time. Unfortunately, there's not that many organizations like ours to pick up the slack. So we try our hardest 
to take as many cases as we can and get our partners to work with us and take those, those cases. Essentially what we do is um, we'll, we'll either identify um, a civil right that's being violated or anti-Semitism that's occurring. And it's quite tricky because anti-Semitism that occurs doesn't necessarily um, mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that because anti-Semitism is occurring that a civil rights violation is also occurring. They often are intertwined, but not always. You can have anti-Semitism, which is perfectly legal, unfortunately, but that's the case. Our country allows hate speech and hateful attitudes, um, and that's a whole separate conversation. But when that anti-Semitism crosses over into illegal behavior, where they're violating the law, that's when we can step in and say, oh no, we're gonna put a stop to this. We are going to let you know that you're violating the law. We're gonna tell you how you're violating the law. And if you still persist in doing that, we will sue you to make you stop violating the law. And I should say that this is what makes us kind of unique in, in the world we live in today with all the organizations that exist that um, you know have Jewish causes at heart. We are not only a think tank advocacy group. In other words, we don't only identify anti-Semitic incidents that are occurring, anti-Semitic laws. Um, we don't only identify anti-Semitic violators, and we also don't only identify anti-Semitic civil, I mean, excuse me, civil rights violators. What we do is we identify them. We at times name them, you know, because sometimes that's all we can do. They're not necessarily violating the law. And in that sense, we're very much kind of a an advocacy group slash think tank. We try to think of ways we can get them to stop, you know, committing whatever it is, whatever anti-Semitic things, saying whatever anti-Semitic things they're saying. We try to get them to stop. And then um, if we're unsuccessful with that, we take it a step further that a lot of organizations can't do, which is we take them to court. So we don't just say, we're going to name you and shame you. We're going to let the whole world know that you're anti-Semitic or that you're violating, you know, people, Jewish civil rights. But if you don't stop, we're going to hold you to task and we're going to make you stop by suing you in court. So that's what makes us different. Um, and like I said, uh, we also, we, we do a number of things, not just advocacy. We also litigate ourselves, litigate with partners and fund other litigation, outside litigation when necessary, if we're the ones that can't handle the litigation. All right, so you mentioned earlier, uh, Brooke Goldstein founded this, and I'm just gonna tie this into what you just said, uh, mm -hmm. founded the, the organization to, to fight on a legal battlefield, uh, the anti-Semitism and the civil liberties for Jews. Obviously, there's, there was a need for that. Uh, there are other civil liberties organizations that do fight for civil liberties, especially in America here. I, I can't speak for other countries. I don't know, but I'm assuming that exists elsewhere also. But Brooke seemed to have seen a need for it in the Jewish community in specific. That leads me to believe that other organizations that exist on this playing field don't represent the Jewish community as much as they might represent other racist uh, or other, other, Maybe other, other ethnic other minorities yeah. that are experiencing, you know, um, you know, anti whatever it is that they are, or, yeah. you know, their civil rights are being violated. Yeah, and so that is true. Yeah. So why do you think that there's, that there seems to be so many places that really take up the mantle of fighting racism, but kind of ignore anti-Semitism as one of them? You know, I think that's a very loaded question, and it's probably a long conversation. And it's a great question, because I agree with you. That is 100% what's going on. And the question is why. There's two reasons for that, I think, if I look at it kind of from a, a global perspective. Number one, Jewish people themselves feel like they don't have a right to make noise when their civil rights are being violated, because a lot of the people in the Jewish community are successful, you know, by and large, financially successful or doing well. And they feel like the civil rights violations that occur, you know, are, are not damaging them to the extent that they may be damaging other communities. And so therefore we don't have a right to take up space 
you know, in the, in the civil rights arena. And um, th that's one reason. And I have to say to that reason, that's a very, very terrible mistake because every kind of discrimination has its own little form that it takes. And when it comes to Jewish people, the form that our civil rights violation takes is this very slow, low-level, insidious, trickle, trickle, trickle form that nobody realizes is so terrible until it's so terrible. It's like, I always compare it to like a balloon. You have a balloon and you're putting water in and there's little trickles of water going in and it's not a big deal. You can't even tell the water's in there. Eventually it starts getting bigger and bigger and then all of a sudden it's so big it bursts and it's too late at that point. You know, now you finally realize the damage the water was causing. And that's very much what happens in the Jewish community and what's happening now and has happened over the history of the Jewish people is, you know, we're discriminated against, our civil rights are violated, they're in little ways, or we think they're, they're not necessarily little, but we think they're not affecting us that much. You know, because we're like, well, we're still doing well, we're still financially successful, you know, we're still getting educated. So how bad is this really? But what we don't realize is these little trickles, these little drops are adding up. And then all of a sudden, it's too late. There's a Holocaust. Because these little civil rights violations were happening before World War II and have been happening throughout history and have been ignored just like we're very prone to do in the US and in Europe today's days, post-Holocaust. So it's extremely important that we don't fall for that and we do fight for our civil rights. But I was saying there were two reasons for this. So reason number one is like I said, we ourselves are inclined not to make noise when our civil rights are being violated. In addition, the outside world sees Jewish people very often especially European Jewish people, as, you know, again, financially successful, not doing poorly, you know, educated, um, you know, doing well on a cultural level themselves. And they just feel like, why should we waste resources, you know, our civil rights fighting resources on a community that's doing better than so many other communities that have so many more issues. And again, they're making the same mistake we're making which is these little drops of civil rights violations get bigger and bigger and bigger. That balloon grows and grows and grows until it bursts. Now, I don't want to take away from the fact that there's also, you know, downright anti-Semitism going on sometimes, not always, but sometimes in these civil rights organizations. Um, they just don't want to engage in defending the civil rights of Jewish people. There's anti-Semitic beliefs, um, and they just want to use their resources for other groups, you know, not even evaluating whether or not Jewish people are doing well, not doing well, whether they need it or they don't. They're just downright anti-Semitic. So I think uh, that's certainly, you know, another factor that comes into, into play. That's interesting. So when... I originally asked that question. I expect that to be the number one answer, the anti-Semitism of other groups. But that, you're saying that's even a tertiary answer. You gave the answer of Jews on ourselves and then and the, the, these other organizations that don't necessarily see, them as, see the anti-Semitism as big enough of an issue for them to take on. But you're saying that there is anti-Semitism in these organizations, but it's not really- Some of them. One, some of them, some of them. Yeah, I don't want to really make the, blanket statements. Right. right. But, the, but it's not really two of the main reasons as to why, why the, the Welfare Project had to, has to exist. So I'm not in any way diminishing the amount of anti-Semitism that exists. And I certainly right. also don't want to diminish uh, the fact that there's a lot of organizations that are being funded, civil rights organizations that are being funded by certain groups, and therefore they only have an interest in defending the civil rights of those groups or not necessarily being funded by those groups but people who have sympathies to those groups not necessarily good or bad um but i think we would be remiss to ignore the fact that jewish people in the jewish community are responsible to a great extent for not making the noise we should be making when our civil rights are being violated now i do think that's changing 
And I'll tell you why. It's changing because of the surge in anti-Semitism we're seeing. Things have gotten so bad that now the organizations that were like, eh, we're, we're above the fray, we're going to ignore you know, the Jewish organizations that, you know, say, well, we'll let people know this is anti-Semitic, but we're above the fray. We're not really being affected by this. See, we're still doing well. You know, now they're thinking twice about that. We're not doing so well when people in our community are getting stabbed to death at Hanukkah parties. Right. You know, <laughs> then now, now kind of the, the whole game has changed. Right. And so I think we are getting louder. And that's why more than ever, the Lawfare Project work, the Lawfare Project's work is so important right now. And, and, and people really want to work with us. You know, we have attorneys who want to be part of our network, who ask to be part of our network. We have donors because we get funded by donations. We have donors who want to support us because they realize just how important our work is. So I think on some level, the Lawfare Project and Brooke Goldstein was very much ahead of her time when 10 years ago, she saw a real need for this kind of action. In, uh, on behalf of the Jewish community. And, and this is part of why I am so proud of, of being a part of the, the organization, that I can do this work that's become ever so important as time goes on. All right, so there's a lot of different organizations out there that deal with civil liberties, civil rights. I won't go into any of the other ones. Mm-hmm. I, I was debating whether going into them, I'm gonna not. But what I've noticed is that a lot of civil rights organizations they start out with a goal, with, with a, a, a group of people they want to protect, and then it eventually expands somehow. And when it expands, what tends to happen is that they, you see a partisan lean one way or the other between what it used to be, which was protection of X, and then it becomes protection of X unless blah, 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 or expansion, and then, but we won't include certain groups in our, in our ability to protect. So how would the Lawfare Project, and you could disagree with me if you, if you think that I'm wrong about that, mm-hmm. but um, how would the Lawfare Project stay nonpartisan? Because I, I, I believe, and I, I've read on your literature, it's strictly a nonpartisan thing. If you see anti-Semitism on the right, if you see anti-Semitism on the left, you see discrimination either way, you're going after them, which is great. I think we could all agree on that. But how do you remain nonpartisan to the outside eye? So, I mean, that's a great question because often issues get very politicized. And if you take, even if it's not really a political issue and it should not be politicized, um, it becomes politicized. And then if you take a stand against a government official, you know, or against an organization that may be partisan, you start being accused of being partisan when in fact, you're not. So it is a very, you're, you're right that it is a very kind of difficult line to, to, to walk on. Um, I think what we try to do is we really, really, really focus on the law, the violation. What's happening? Is it a violation? And if it is, we ignore who we're calling out. It's not about the person we're calling out. It's about what that person, what that government organization what that school is doing rather than, you know, looking at, you know, what affiliations the person or organization or government has. Um, And so we just keep ourselves focused on that. And sure, there's times that, you know, we like everybody else get accused of being partisan, but I can tell you as somebody who works at the Lawfare Project, who looks at the cases and the issues that come in, Partisanship has absolutely no place in my decision as to whether or not to move forward, in the Lawfare Project's decision as to whether or not to move forward in, um, you know, trying to stop a violation that's occurring or anti-Semitic behavior that's, that's happening. We look at it from a pure legal standpoint. It's very important that I make this point because, you know, so often, organizations, not just our organization, is accused of being, you know, conservative, Republican, Democrat, liberal, and then the issue becomes politicized, and it really should not be politicized. I will tell you from also personal experience, if you're getting criticized for being partisan from both sides, then you're doing a good job. 
That's, and that probably is true. That yeah. probably is true. Um, but the point really is that we do everything we can in our power not to be partisan. And most importantly, we do not shy away from an issue just because we might look partisan. You know, so because that, that can be another issue where people get become so afraid, you know, organizations like ours that, you know, fight for Jewish civil rights, maybe not through the law, but they fight for them in other ways, which we, of course, support, you know, they shy away from an issue just because it's an issue that a Republican is having or a Democrat is having, and they don't want to call the Democrat or the Republican out because they're you know, they're afraid to be called Republican or Democrat or liberal or progressive or whatever it may be. So, yeah, that's definitely a, a great question. So before we get into, I, I want to go into a number of the cases that you've been working on and we'll get there. Uh, but before we do that, I, I'd like you to hopefully clarify some legalese terms for my listeners and for me, because I'm not a lawyer and I would imagine the majority of my listeners aren't. So if I can get you to first talk about freedom of speech, versus the infringement on that. What's actually protected in freedom of speech and where would you be going into the infringement on it? So I'm smiling because <laughs> you're asking me a question that would be a full year's course at a law school. <laughs> there is no way I'm ever going to really give you kind of a, a full answer on that, but I can kind of give you a Reader's Digest condensed version. Yeah, let's do that. Look at it, okay. So, Let's start with no right is absolute in this country. No right whatsoever. For example, you cannot, um, let's say you have the right, well, let's talk about freedom of speech. Let's just, let's just use that, right? So for example, you have the right to speak your mind in this country. One way you can speak your mind would be through action, okay? Does that mean because I don't like you, I can kill you? Of course not, right? Because I'm infringing on your right to have life, your right to live. There is no such a thing as an unfettered right. Rights do not exist in vacuums. All rights are balanced between, you know, the person who has the right and the person who's being affected by you exercising your right. So that's the most important place to start from, right? Okay. Now, not only that, there are certain things in freedom of speech that are inherently not protected, certain kinds of speech, I should say, when it comes to freedom of speech that are inherently not protected. For example, child pornography. That's a form of speech that is not protected, right? Fighting words. If I kind of riled you up or a whole audience up to try to go ahead and kill a certain group of people, that would not be uh, legal. Right. So mm -hmm. there are certain and I don't want to get into all the different exceptions, but there are certain literal exceptions that the courts have found the freedom of speech right off the bat. Those are never protected. I gave you two examples of those. Okay. okay. Then beyond that, everything goes to court. So what happens is I'm trying to exercise my freedom of speech. You're saying that it violates a right of yours. And then we end up in court and the court looks at it and the court uses a number of different standards to determine because the court sets standards. You know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with how the court system works, but every time there's a case in a certain jurisdiction, there's precedent. And now the court's kind of bound by that decision. Right. The, and like I said, this is such a large body of law, um, you know, that for me to even try to scratch the surface here is almost uh, ridiculous. But but what I can say in general is that the courts develop standards that they use, you know, and then they decide on uh, using these standards, who's in the right here, you know, like, does your freedom to speak prevail or does the other person's freedom not to be, you know, for his right not to be impinged upon, does that, does that prevail, you know, and they use these standards depending on the kind of issue, there are a number of standards they use. In other words, it's not just like, here's the, the standard they always use to determine whether or not somebody's rights are, are being violated because somebody's using his freedom of speech rights. No, it's depending on the situation, there's different standards they use. There's probably another year of, of law school, but where does the line get drawn between a civil liberties violation 
and racism. Because as you mentioned before, racism is legal in the United States of America. Right. You're not allowed to be racist. And at what point does it become a civil liberties violation? I would even say that discrimination is, is legal. But at what point does it become a civil liberties violation? That is a great question, Izzo. Thanks for raising that because I find that people often confuse Jewish civil rights violations with anti-Semitism. Absolutely. Okay, so first, right, first I want to say, and, and I'm not accusing anybody of, of being naive here, but sometimes if you're not a lawyer, you just don't know some of the basics. And there's no such a thing as Jewish civil rights. In, London. in other words, there's no like body of law that's entitled Jewish civil rights. And it's surprising how many people I've talked to that actually think that. They're like, when your Jewish civil rights is being violated, it's because there's laws on the books entitled Jewish civil rights and those are being violated. Wow. That's not the way it works. Um, and I'm sure many of your listeners know that, but, I'm, but some probably don't. So civil rights are a bundle of rights that everybody has. They're the rights not to be discriminated against. And there's a number of them out there codified in the Civil Rights Act, for example, that, that, that has a lot of them. You have a right not to be discriminated against, let's say, pursuant to Title VII by your employer because you're religious. Let me just give you that one right, right? That's a civil right. Everybody has that civil right, whether you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, it doesn't matter, you have the right. Now, in the event you're Jewish and you try to practice your Jewish religion and your employer is discriminating against you because you're doing that, now there is a Jewish civil rights violation, not because the law is specific to Jews, but because the person happens to be Jewish trying to practice his Jewish religion and he's not being allowed to. You know, if the person were Muslim, it would be a, a, civil, right, a civil rights violation for a Muslim, right? It doesn't really matter who you are, you have that right. And if it's being violated, your civil rights are being violated. Now, here's the thing that gets confusing. Just because somebody's violating your civil rights because you're Jewish does not mean anti-Semitism is going on. And also conversely, because anti-Semitism is going on, it doesn't mean somebody's civil rights is being violated. So let me just talk a little bit about both of them. So going to what I said first, if your boss is the kind of guy that just doesn't want to accommodate anybody's religious uh, needs, right? Your boss is just like, I want everybody to come every day. I don't care what holiday it is. I don't care what you're practicing. He's not anti-Semitic. He may not, he may fire you because you took off on Rosh Hashanah, but he's not anti-Semitic. He's going to fire the Christian guy who took off on Christmas or, you know, or, or Easter or whatever religion, religious holiday is, you know, very important to him. So it's not necessarily about being anti-Semitic as much as he's just not respecting anybody's civil rights, right? Now, certainly as an organization that defends the civil rights of the Jewish people, if somebody were in that position, and in fact, I actually have a case now where somebody is in that position where he was fired as a result of not wanting to work on Rosh Hashanah and the employer has obligations. It's not that simple. Let me just put it out here. Now, it's not that simple where every employer has to accommodate you if you want to work on, don't want to work on Rosh Hashanah. There's standards, again, going back to those standards that the, the, um, the employer has to meet in order to say, I'm not going to allow you to work on Rosh Hashanah. In other words, the, 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 the employer has to show that it's an undue burden to get a substitute, right? So it's, mm -hmm. you know, they have to work at it. Right. But, um, but the point is, um, you know, so I was trying to explain how you can have a civil rights violation and be Jewish, therefore, therefore it's a civil rights violation of a Jewish person, but it doesn't necessarily mean anti-Semitism is going on, right. right? Now, conversely, you can have anti-Semitism that's absolutely not a civil rights violation because in this country, it is absolutely legal to say hateful things. It's legal to hate people. I can stand on a corner and say, I hate everybody with blonde hair. You know, I hate all, you know, people of a certain race or in a certain ethnicity. 
I could even say, I wish they left, all left this country, right? I can say all kinds of not nice things, but it's not against the law. It's not a civil rights violation. I could be a store owner and say, oh, I hate serving you know, people of whatever ethnic group. That's not, and I could you know, make that announcement to everybody who wants to hear me. That is not against the law. However, if somebody from that ethnic group comes into my restaurant and I tell them, I'm sorry, I'm not serving you because you're from that ethnic group, now I've just violated the law. That is a civil rights violation of that person. Now, so bringing it back to the Lawfare Project and what we do is, we do both. Remember I was saying before how we're a hybrid of kind of think tank, advocacy group, litigation fund and kind of law firm we do it all yep so we handle all of it when we see anti-semitism going on we call it out even if it's not a civil rights violation even if we can't take it to court you know what i mean because let's say we saw a store where they you know said very you know derogatory things about jewish people even though they were still serving jewish people in their store we would call them out and let them know let the world know that you know this store is anti-semitic we'll write them a letter and you know try to get them to stop however as long as they don't violate the law there's nothing else we could do yeah that's a great transition into the cases that you're working on i'm going to let you talk about some of the cases you're working on but i do want to start with the ann arbor synagogue and i'll get to exactly why i wanted to start with this i heard your interview you actually sent it to me your interview on the ann arbor radio station Mm -hmm. uh, where you explain most of it. And, and we'll link the, uh, that interview in our show notes and on our social media. Um, okay. But if you can give us a small Notes version of what happened in Ann Arbor and what you did to litigate that case. And I'll explain afterwards why I thought this case was deserving of a highlight. And then we can go on to some other cases. But let's start with the Ann Arbor Synagogue. Okay, sure, sure. So in, in Ann Arbor, there's a synagogue and every single year for the past 16 and a half years, literally 16 and a half years, a group of people show up, protesters show up at the synagogue and protest with despicable signs. Um, some of them are just straight up anti-Semitic signs that say Jewish power corrupts, you know, um, no more Holocaust movies, just all kinds of negative things about Jewish people, the stereotypical anti-Semitic tropes throughout the years that have really been devastating to Jewish people. They, they have a lot of those signs. In addition to that, they also have some signs that are anti-Israel, saying, you know, you know, end the Palestinian Holocaust, um, you know, Israel and apartheid state, signs like that. Okay. Now, that, you're saying this is every year? Is on a specific date or is it? For the past 16 and a half years, every single Saturday, this group of protesters oh, wow. show up during services, before services, during services, and right after services, so that all the congregants have to be, you know, inconvenienced and harassed while they're trying to practice their religion. Okay. Um, and, they, and they carry these, these terrible signs that are anti-Jewish, you know, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, and um, the congregants of the synagogue and the synagogue itself has appealed to the city to stop it. And the city has said they cannot do anything to stop it. And in fact, the city has an ordinance that at the very least they could have enforced to make the protesting less offensive. So the ordinance that they have in place would not allow the protesters, for example, to put their signs in the grass. And there's not that many protesters. So if they can't put it in the grass and they have to hold it, hold their signs, there will be that, you know, that, that much fewer signs. The fact that they can set up a whole display makes it a much larger event. You know, that's, that's an example of how, had the city enforced their ordinance, they would have likely been a much uh, uh there, there would have been much less signs and it, it would have been better for the synagogue but yet they didn't do that okay so, so i'm gonna i'm gonna comment a couple of things on this mm -hmm. so first thing is 
that this is the exact type of case that I like because I wrote in an article this past week about I never call out specific uh, no-named racists, no-named anti-Semitic people in what and whatever I write. It's usually when something happens in an elected official or in a, a, a even a celebrity, a politician, somebody with a platform that matters when they do something or they don't do something that they should have done that warrants them to be called out. So here you have a case of elected officials in the, in the city of Ann Arbor that did not do all in their power based on their own laws to protect the, the civil liberties of somebody else. So I'm glad you brought that up with, with the town. The other thing that I want to point out is that this is clearly one of those conflicting uh, rights where you have the right of freedom of religion coming right into contact with the freedom of speech. So I'll let right. you talk a little bit about that, about both of those points. Right. So, um, of course, the city was defending themselves by saying, well, we didn't enforce our ordinance because we felt like the protesters should have, you know, the freedom of speech uh, that, that they, the Constitution gives them. And if they want to say these hateful things, they can say these hateful things. Now, just to be clear, the Lawfare Project protects the freedom of speech pretty much at all costs. I mean, unless the freedom of speech is infringing on the rights of another party and that that infringement is great enough that the freedom of speech should not be allowed to continue. So in this case, the Lawfare Project in our lawsuit is not arguing, and by the way, I'm working with co-counsel on this, we're not arguing that the protesters hateful speech should stop. We're saying nothing of the sort. We're saying take your hateful speech and do it anywhere else you want in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Don't do it in front of a synagogue and impinge on the congregants' right to worship their religion free from harassment. Now, just so you understand, for many, many years, the courts, all the way up to the Supreme Court, all the courts have been extremely clear on placing time, manner, and place restrictions on freedom of speech. So you can't, for example, if you wanna show up to a hospital and start telling old ladies and men that are on their deathbeds that you know they're going to die and go to hell because they're not practicing whatever kind of religion, you know, that's not okay. They don't allow you to do that. They say the right to speech is not unfettered. There are time, place, and manner restrictions. And what our argument is, is that the synagogue, number one, is in a residential area. There have been many cases where the courts have placed um, restrictions on protesting in residential areas where people have an expectation of privacy, and that's where the synagogue is. But the city didn't want to even think about that. They were just so focused on, we have to protect the rights of these protesters. They didn't want to look at the rights of the congregants in the synagogue. And this goes back to what I was saying before, how often governments, groups of people, when they see the civil rights of Jewish people being violated, they don't seem to have a problem with it. Oh, you'll just take it. You'll deal with it. You're okay with it. And by the way, time, place, and manner restrictions should be placed on the protesters for many reasons that we cite in our lawsuit, not just because it's a residential area. I was just giving you an example. Also, courts have routinely placed time, manner, and place restrictions on people who were speaking when they were holding audiences as captive audiences. In other words, they're speaking in a place where the people that have to listen cannot avoid it because that's where they're going to worship or do whatever it is they're doing. You know, they cannot bludgeon them with the speech and these people are a captive audience. That's another time, place, and manner restriction that courts have routinely placed on, on, on speech. Um, so instead of the city of Ann Arbor thinking, wow, this is terrible, let's at least enforce our ordinance, they're all ready to, to, to ignore the civil rights of the Jewish congregants and are so busy wanting to protect the rights of speech of these protesters 
when these protesters could speak anywhere, anywhere in Ann Arbor. And the bizarre thing about it all is the synagogue is not the state of Israel. If you have an issue with Israel, why are you talking in front? I mean, why is it even important to talk in front of the synagogue? They're just regular people, just like if they came to your synagogue and started protesting, that would not be okay. It's the right. same thing. Well, we can, we can go on for a long time right. if we're going to talk about anti-Semitism versus anti-Israel. But yeah, I think, but, every, yeah. I, think the, I think the listeners of this podcast are smart enough to know that, that's, that there's a difference. But regardless, even yeah. if there isn't a difference, whether it's the state of Israel, they just want to be anti-Semitic, or they're doing both, it doesn't really matter. The fact is, that's so upsetting to me when I look at this case, is that it kind of confirms what I was saying before, which is how easy it is for governments, people that are in responsible positions, to look away when Jewish civil rights are being violated, when they don't do that anywhere else. You know, so there's no reason in the world for the city not to afford the congregants the same thing I guarantee you they would afford to almost any other ethnic group that's suffering the same kind of violation. They just don't see them as being in need of protection. And that's why we stepped in. 16 and a half years, we didn't know what was going on. We only found out it was going on recently. But as soon as my co-counsel brought the case to my attention, I said, absolutely. This is a situation where Jewish people are just expected to be quiet while their civil rights are being violated. Now, I don't know what's gonna happen in court, but I do know this. I'll know that the Lawfare Project stood up for the rights of the civil rights of the congregants. We are not gonna keep silent anymore when the civil rights of Jewish people are being violated. That's, That's the bottom line. And I just want to bring out the reason that I brought up this case and what I thought was very important about this. And that is the radio interview you actually did. And listening to the radio interview, I don't think that the, the woman that was interviewing you was Jewish. No, she wasn't. Right. Yeah. So this is a, a public radio station in Ann Arbor that brought up this case and is publicizing this case for their entire city to hear. So my question is, what can we do as the Jewish community to bring in people from outside Judaism to help fight our cause. So there's one thing if you and I and other, other Jews are fighting for the civil liberties and the rights of Jews to practice their religion without harassment, but I think it becomes more of a, a strong argument if you have people that aren't Jews that are fighting for us. So what can we do to bring in others to our, to our fight? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, so first of all, there are a lot of non-Jewish friends of Jews, absolutely, that support Israel, support Jewish causes in general, support, uh, you know, the civil rights of Jewish people. But one way to do that is to do exactly what I'm doing right now. We are bringing the issue to the forefront. We are saying, this is what's happening could you believe that the same thing would happen? Would you believe that the same thing would happen if this were a different ethnic minority suffering the same harassment when they try to practice their religion as the Jewish people? Do you think that this would be going on? And almost anybody, even not Jewish, and I know this because I have loads and loads of not Jewish friends, are just shocked to hear the story. And, they, and, and, you know, and when I tell them, could you imagine if this were a mosque, do you think this would be going on? They're like, of course not or not even a mosque, even just a Christian church. People right. would be horrified. You know, I'm just saying, I'm using a mosque as an example because unfortunately, they've also suffered their fair share of discrimination based on terrorist activity that they're not responsible for necessarily, right? right? So I understand that, and that's why I'm using them as, as an example. But no other ethnic minority group would face the same reaction from the city as, as the, con the Jewish congregation is facing. It's just absolutely I, I'm actually shocked I'm only hearing about this 16 years. Like it took 16 years for this to, to come into the public. I'm sure there are people out there that know about this case, that know this has been happening in Ann Arbor. I'm not one of them. And I'm shocked that it's taken this long for people to find out about That's it. That's part of the virus. It's what I'm saying is that Jewish people are not standing up and saying, hey, look what's happening to us. They're not making the noise they need to make. That's what I was saying in the beginning, and that's you know, what I still maintain. Yeah. And I'm hoping that will change, and I see it changing as the situation, the anti-Semitism situation in the U.S. and the world is getting worse and worse. I'll give you a chance right now to go over a couple of the other cases, maybe not as in-depth as we just went into, 
with with the Ann Arbor uh, synagogue, but any other cases that you think are important that people should know about that are either ongoing, if you can talk about them, or stuff that has already been uh, been solved or and not solved, well, come to a conclusion. Uh, going back to what I was talking about before with the employer's obligations to accommodate employees' uh, religious practices, right? And uh, under certain conditions, like I said, it's not an unfettered right. The organization, first of all, has to be a big enough organization, and they also have to have tried to accommodate them. And if they can't accommodate them, then that's different. But, you know, I have, uh, you know, a, a number of, of kind of situations in the works where there's a large health institution, such as a hospital, firing an employer, an employee, excuse me, because he could not show up on Rosh Hashanah. And the truth of the matter is the hospital just blatantly violated the law because there is no way, there is no way that a hospital doesn't have an extra nurse to put in the place of this particular nurse who got fired as a result of not showing up on Rosh Hashanah. And, you know, it's something that we're, we're dealing with, you know, we're in the works on how it's going to proceed. I don't know. Remember, we work on all different fronts. We let them know you're violating the law. Maybe they remedy it. Maybe they don't. Maybe we settle. Maybe we don't. And if we don't, and that's a clear violation of the law, then we potentially take them to court and try to force them to abide by the law. Wow. So, um, yeah, that's definitely another example of the kinds of cases that we take. But, I mean, there are so many. If you look at our website, you'll see how many we have. <laughs> and, we'll link, and we'll link the website in the, uh, in the yeah. show notes. I wanted to get your opinion, and if there's anything you're doing about it, on Mayor of New York Bill de Blasio's tweets. Now, people who are familiar with my work know that I am no fan of this mayor, and I have made those clear, and, and I don't want there to be any ambiguity here. I don't want to entrap you in saying something you don't. I do not like the mayor. I, I, I've never liked the okay. mayor since he took office. Get that so, out of the way. let um, me take a step but, back from okay. that and say that you certainly have you know, obviously you have a right to have any kind of opinions and they can even be partisan opinions. Yep. They probably should be considering you have a different kind of job than the job I do. Right. But, you know, I, myself, any issues the Lawfare Project has with de Blasio has nothing to do with his political affiliation. Okay. That has, because that's not what we do. We don't look at anybody's political affiliation. We address the behavior of the person, the institution, the organization, and then we determine whether or not it's legal or not legal, anti-Semitic or not anti-Semitic, and then we move forward from there. Great. So I'm just going to read out the tweet that went uh, a little bit crazy on Twitter uh, last week from the time of recording. And then I'm going to read out a tweet that he just sent out today, which is uh, May 19th. Both of these were in relation to the ongoing COVID situation um, and the Jewish community. The first one was following a Jewish funeral, in case people aren't familiar with by now. Uh, where a lot of people congregated for the funeral without proper uh, social distancing protocols. He said, my message to the Jewish community and all communities is simple. The time for warnings has passed. I have instructed the NYPD to proceed immediately to summons or even arrest those who gather in large groups. This is about stopping a disease and saving lives, period. Then the tweet today, I don't need to give you any background on it. It's going to be in the tweet. Earlier today, the NYPD shut down a yeshiva conducting classes with as many as 70 children. I can't stress how dangerous this is for our young people. We're, we're issuing a cease and desist order and we'll make sure we keep our communities and kids safe. So I just wanted to get what uh, your reaction is from those just those tweets. Nothing else that the mayor has said in the past, not related to these tweets. And what can possibly be done on your end? So first of all, the Lawfare Project has, we are addressing this. Great. Um, and we do think it's an issue. And let me explain why. So first of all, I believe in social distancing. Okay, so I am not saying that what, the kind of social distancing rules that were not being followed, you know, are, are, are okay. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that in this country, Every government, starting from the federal government down to the most local governments, have an obligation to enforce the law equally. They cannot go after, selectively prosecute 
or selectively try to enforce a law against one group of people while ignoring other, group of pe other groups of people that are doing the same thing. So here's the problem. On the very same day that the community in Williamsburg was attending the funeral of their rabbi, which by the way is a devastating event, you know, let me just point that out. It's not like they were just, you know, not social distancing for no reason, right? This is a devastating event for them. But on that very same day was the day the Blue Angels were flying in support of, the, of, of nurses and, and healthcare workers. And the difference in reaction that the NYPD had to those who were not social distancing in the parks watching the Blue Angels and in, in its reaction to this community that was going to their rabbi's funeral was just immense. For the Blue Angel park viewers in the park, the police were walking around handing out masks to help people who were not social distancing and maybe making a comment or two, hey guys, try to you know, move it. They came to Williamsburg, flinging people to the ground, threatening to shut them down. I mean, threatening to put them in jail, not to, sh not to shut the funeral down, but threatening to put them in jail a complete different reaction. And that is discrimination. And we know that, that's, that's discrimination that, that everybody recognizes. In fact, so many of the cases that some of the racial minorities bring is exactly that. Why are you just prosecuting us for drug offenses when you're not, a, not prosecuting, you know, majority, the majority of the population for that, right? And that is a great, a great argument and that is, the essence of discrimination. So, so that is one issue that the Lawfare Project has. And the way we've dealt with that, like I said, we're very action oriented. So many organizations called out the mayor. Many organizations asked to meet with the mayor. What we did is we went a step further. We filed a FOIL request. That's a Freedom of Information Act request. We are, we're asking the New York Police Department to give us certain information that will help us determine whether in fact the mayor was selectively trying to enforce the laws in the Jewish community when he was not doing that every other place with every other group with all the other violations going on. Because if we can see that that's what was going on, this could potentially be a legal action in court. All right. So yeah, I, I will give the mayor a little bit of credit um, because he may have learned from that. Now, I mentioned that that tweet was a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the one about the funeral. And then I mentioned about the yeshiva that just happened yesterday at the time of recording. Over the weekend, this past weekend, there was a large amount of crowds gathering around New York City bars, which were allowed to open for takeout. What happened was that a lot of young people were crowding outside of bars and the mayor did relay his frustrations and, and uh, to the community that did that. So there may be by now he has learned from, from what he's done before, but I don't know if that's a, a too little too late for this case. Right. And, and, and I, I agree with what you're saying. I think he probably did learn his lesson thanks to people like the lawfare that work in yes. the lawfare project that have pointed it out and other organizations, of course. But the other thing I wanted to say about the whole de Blasio incident, um, and this is often kind of overlooked, is let's move away from a legal violation and look at the anti-Semitic aspect of it. Jewish people for literally thousands of years have been a victim, have been victims, sorry, of this collective blaming when something goes wrong in the Jewish community. You know, it started way back when in the times of, of, of Jesus, you know, when all the Jews are blamed because of what some Jewish people did. Um, and it's been going on for years and it's caused countless deaths for Jewish people over the years. And that is exactly what Mayor de Blasio did. There was a small group of Jewish people. We're talking minuscule in comparison to all the Jews in New York. And instead of saying to the, and identifying the individual community in Williamsburg that was going to the funeral and saying to that little community, he said to the Jewish community, the Jewish community, you mean to me? You mean to the thousands 
of doctors that are fighting on the front lines for COVID patients to the scientists that are feverishly working on, on, on vaccines that are Jewish? Is that who you're referring to? I mean, why would you ever say to the Jewish community? And he never apologized for that. That's right. Never. And that really, really enrages me. It enrages me because at a time when anti-Semitism is so bad in this city, at the very least, he should be sensitive to that and not say something like that, bend over backwards. I mean, he shouldn't say something like that no matter what. You don't have to be sensitive not to say something like that. It's just plain wrong. They are not the Jewish community. The people at the funeral are not the whole of the Jewish community. But at a time when anti-Semitism is so bad and saying something like that is so devastating to the Jewish community because it incites anti-Semitism, it's just completely irresponsible for him to say that and he never took responsibility for that. And that really upsets me. He did nothing to fix that. All right, so I'm gonna let you close by telling us where we can find more about the Lawfare Project. Uh, if you guys are on social media, your website, also, if there are any lawyers or philanthropists out there who wish to collaborate with the Lawfare Project, where can they do that? Great. Thank you. So first of all, our website is www.thelawfareproject.org. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And that would be great. Um, number one, I just want to remind everybody that the important work we do is supported by donations. And so there's a little tab right on the site where you can donate to our cause. Um, and, and, and we hope everybody does. There's also a, a tab on the website that allows you to contact us and work with us if you're an attorney and you want to work with us on some of the important causes that we fight for. And of course, this is not an obligation. This is just saying, hey, I want to find out what work you, you do and I want to help you somehow. And then of course, it becomes a conversation um, if there is work available that you can help work with the Lawfare Project on. So this is absolutely not an obligation. Um, and we would absolutely love it for whoever can join us to join us because this cause is so important. And we are really the only organization of its type that does the same amount of you know, litigation as we do advocacy, think tank, funding work, all that together. We're not just you know, an advocacy group, think tank that does a little bit of you know, legal funding here and there. We are full-time lawyers that not just name and shame people that are acting anti-Semitic, violating civil rights, but we are calling them out and holding them accountable in the, in the legal system. That's phenomenal. Is there anywhere we could find you on, on social media? So first of all, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. So um, absolutely, you can look us up there. There's also links from our site to social media. So that, okay. that's, that's easy to find. Great. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to leave with us? Um, well, I appreciate you having me on the show and giving me the opportunity to tell people what it is we do. And I hope something I've said has resonated with some of your viewers so that they don't keep quiet when their civil rights are being violated. When they see something, they say something. And of course, they can call us directly. I should have probably made that clearer in the beginning but we have a telephone number on our website that anybody can call um, if they see something that's, that they feel needs to be addressed. If it's their own personal issue or they know somebody who has a personal issue where their civil rights is being violated, they should give us a call. Of course, we can't take every case and unfortunately we're somewhat overwhelmed, but we certainly can take a lot of cases and we'd love to hear from, from, from anybody who has something like this going on. And I'll add in that there's also, if you want to email instead of calling, you can email on the website. That's actually how I got in touch with you guys to begin with. Right. I just sent a, a cold email and, and, and you guys are very responsive. I got a response the next day. Right. Yeah. 100%. All right. Zipporah Wright, thank you so much for joining us. This is a very enlightening conversation. Thank you for spending the time. I know you, we spoke earlier that you have a crazy amount of work to do tonight, and I hope you get to do that. Um, Thank you. I yes. do on my and, case. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and please stay safe during these uh, also like crazy times. Same to you. And thank you for having me. My thanks to Zipporah Reich for joining us this week. 
Just to reiterate, the Lawfare Project is a not-for-profit that aims to protect our community against the very real existence of civil rights violations. If you'll recall back to a time before COVID, anti-Semitic attacks, reports of college campus bias against Jews, debates about the BDS movement, and politicians, including Donald Trump and Ilhan Omar, reviving some old Jewish stereotypes were some of the hottest topics in our country. If you can, please consider donating to the organization, and if that means waiting until this whole pandemic passes to do so, I don't think they'll be against that. Links to their website can be found in the show notes. Until next time, as always, call to The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Sorelli Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg from Journeys 4. You can email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Jewish underscore living. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.